The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Acts 5, I'll read beginning at verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to preach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. When the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside." And when the captain of the temple and chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captains with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. When they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet, here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And so we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care that you are take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days Theodos arose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about four hundred, joined him. He was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him came Judas the Galilean, who rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. Let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God... You will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. 
So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease preaching and teaching Jesus as the Christ. This is God's holy word. I wonder if you would think in your mind of friends, associates, relatives, and ask if you know any person who you honestly believe is 100% neutral about God and Jesus Christ. Maybe somebody comes to mind that you say, well, they've never certainly expressed a negative opinion. And I think, although they seem to sit on the fence where religion is concerned, they're neutral. Well, I would say that's an appearance only because the truly neutral person does not exist, not according to the Bible. There's no one neutral about God and his Son. The Bible's analysis is best summarized in Romans 8, 7. The carnal, secular mind is at enmity with God. It is not subject to the law of God, nor can it be. And Jesus said it even more bluntly, he who is not with me is against me. What God did in history through the cross and resurrection provokes unbelief. It provokes the rage and opposition of unbelief in all kinds of ways. Psalm 2 predicted it. We've mentioned this already several times in Acts. Psalm 2, David predicted that kings of earth take their stand and rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed. Who was his anointed? Way back in David's time, David prophesied Christ and the opposition that would come to Christ long before anyone ever knew the name of Jesus of Nazareth. We observed in Acts 4 when we saw a similar passage of the first opposition to the apostles that this opposition acts irrationally. It is not logically. It is not objective. It's passionate and it's determined to use power if it has to to come against the faith of Christ. I think we know that in America today, the gospel we cherish as the biblical gospel is greeted by, at best, veiled hostility, scornful condescension, vitriolic attack. Those who speak for Christ and live for Christ are lampooned by comedians, dismissed by unbelieving theologians, mocked by filmmakers. Christians are regarded as basically uneducated, brainless yokels. And the Bible is depicted as a book of Hebrew myths you can certainly twist to prove any point or support anything you wanted to support. Families are divided by this. When one member professes faith in Christ and sometimes turns to their family and and wants to say, I've got great news for all of you, they suddenly find out it's not greeted with such open arms. In fact, people treat a passionate Christian witness in a family even if they themselves are moderate, polite churchgoers, they tend to treat that person as if they were a leper of some kind. 
And if you have no experience at all with any of this antagonism I've been speaking about, honestly, I have to say to you, I wonder how cleverly you are hiding your Christian witness. Because if you aren't hiding it, you're tasting the opposition in some form or other. Now, Acts 5 shows the religious establishment of the first century in Jerusalem coming against Christians. This is the second major time there's been arrests. There have been very stern warnings. This time there's a beating involved. They would have killed them, but we're told that public pressure kept that from happening. I was reading a illustration related to this from a Californian, a native Californian who grew up surfing in the Pacific Ocean. I said to the folks at first service, you know this didn't come from me because you can't picture me surfing in the Pacific Ocean. I know you can't picture that. But this gentleman was talking about how it's important in surfing to gauge the wave and the break of the wave. And of course, you want a big wave if you're going to surf correctly. So he said, what you can't do is is run away or swim away from the wave. If you're retreating from it, you're going to get smashed by it. What you have to do is time the wave, he said, and dive right into it and go under. That's the way to treat a big wave. And he likened this to the way Christians need to face opposition in our culture. Understand it, watch it come, know how it operates, but actually be prepared to face it head on. Because if you try to run from it, it may well knock you flat. You may well find, if you learn to understand these things and face these things, that this opposition can be for you a quiet badge of honor when you understand you're being treated the way Jesus Christ himself was treated. Now first today I ask you to look at verses 17 to 25 and see that people fight God when they are jealous of God's success. The high priests and his associates were filled with jealousy, it says. So they arrested the apostles, put them in jail. Imagine you spent your career, I'm sure somebody here did spend their career as a good old C student. You did all right, you didn't fail things, but you also didn't hit the high honor roll. And you were plugging along, getting your C's and C pluses, maybe a B now and then. But maybe in homeroom, the person sat beside you who seemed to get all A's with no effort. Now let me ask you how you felt towards that person. Not great, right? Weren't you a little envious of that person who could just ace the test without seeming to study very well and you really had to knock yourself out to get a C? Well, that dynamic was at least operative to some extent here as the religious rulers of Jerusalem were teaching people supposedly the ways of God from the law of God. But here came a group out of their same roots, out of their same tradition, who obviously were experiencing the power of God by the Spirit in their lives. And other people, remarkably, many of them, were seeing their lives transformed and enlivened and revived by God's power. And these folks, the religious leaders, didn't have anything to do with that. Luke calls it jealousy. And jealousy, you know, is mostly an emotional behavior rather than a rational behavior. There is a proper sense of jealousy, I understand. Actually, we can say God is jealous of his honor, 
A husband should be properly jealous of his wife, that, that she is his wife and not anyone else's wife. But most of the time, jealousy tends to have negative connotations and tends to corrupt us and make us behave badly. Luke says the Sanhedrin were jealous of the Christians because they saw vitality and joy and spontaneous unity and heartfelt service going on from these people and their teaching when their own rituals just brought nitpicking negativism and cold, sterile responses. So what do you do? If you have the political power, which these people did, you decide you need to stamp this out. You can't allow this to happen. You know, what if, what if every C student had somehow the power to stamp out the person getting A's? You know, he said, I want to bring the curve down so that it comes down to my level. And, and just don't allow those people to get A's anymore. That's what this was. Don't allow those people to do that. Don't allow those people to, to see the joy of worshiping God in their lives. And so you put them behind bars, and that's what they did once again, as they had done before. This time, last time they came out of the jail in a natural way. This time they came out in a miraculous way. Yes, we talked about miracles last week. Miraculous. The angel of the Lord. There are commentators that would try to explain this and say the Greek word angelos is the same word for messenger, so it could have just as easily been a human person with a key. You know, some friend of the Christians who, who found the back door and let them out. That's probably a bad interpretation because the phrase angel of the Lord is pretty specific. The door was opened by God's heavenly messenger who then gave instructions and said, go tell the people the full message of this new life. You know, the Bible has humor in it. And sometimes we're so serious we don't see it. This is a great humorous scene that follows next. Here they are all coming in in their robes and their long tassels and their self-importance for a trial. All right, bring those prisoners out. What prisoners? There are no prisoners. The doors are locked. The guards are there. There are no prisoners. And somebody comes in, and even though it was first thing in the morning, they said, you know what? They're down in the temple court. They've been preaching down there for two hours. It's humorous. As finally the apostles are dragged in, again, violence would have been used against them, but it says they were afraid of what the people would do, much as that dynamic had operated before with Jesus. And so they lecture them and have this little trial. What are we supposed to learn here? I do not think the lesson is being given that God will always set his servants free from prison. If that's the lesson, we haven't seen it work in history because hundreds of thousands of Christians have been imprisoned in all kinds of countries throughout the ages, and many have died there, and many are there today. God works in prisons by putting his people there. Well, what I think the lesson is here might be likened to 1 Timothy 2.9 when Paul said once that he was a man bound in chains like a criminal, but he said, the word of God cannot be bound. You can bind me, but you can't bind the word of God. You can't jail it. You can't incarcerate it. You can't put it in a cage. The gospel cannot be hindered. 
And then don't miss the angel's direct message here in verse 20. Tell the message of this new life. What a wonderful new name for the message of resurrection. What is resurrection? A return to life. The resurrection was the core of everything the apostles were preaching. Go tell the message of this new life. The English translations at least put that life in with a capital L. Jesus was the essence of life. He was the stunning presence of God on the earth. He said, I'm the bread of life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the resurrection and the life. I bring life and life more abundantly. And that's what we offer in the gospel, life. People aren't living. They're walking around, but they're not living. Without Christ, they're not living. In Christ, they're alive as God first created human beings to be before sin destroyed and and just damped the fires of that life. People come alive in this earthly time and in eternity when they give obedience to the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is the wellspring of the life of God. But gospel enemies sense that, pull back from it, and oppose it because they're jealous. They'll fight God because they're jealous of his success and his life. Now, secondly, people will fight God when they're guilty over their sins. I think verses 26 to 33 tell this. Peter and the other believers were brought in. Look at the accusation. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And listen, and you are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. That's a very ironic and curious statement. If you have a memory of what is said in Matthew 27, 25, at the time of the crucifixion of Jesus, these very same rulers, about three months before this, incited crowds in Jerusalem and got the crowds to shout, Go look at Matthew 27, 25. The shout was, let Jesus' blood be upon us and our children. We will take accountability for this. They were so angry and so scornful of Christ, they said, we don't care if his blood is on our hands and on the next generation's hands. Now listen to them. They say, you're trying to make us feel guilty. Astonishing. They felt guilty because they were guilty. The blood of Jesus was on their hands. And they couldn't escape that. And yet they're so self-deceived in their sin, in their blindness, that they couldn't even know what they were saying. Peter replies by reminding them of the facts of what happened. It's as if he had pulled out of his pocket, you know, a a clip article from the Jerusalem Times the day after Jesus died, somewhere in a back page. They probably said, uh, rabble-rouser rabbi from Galilee hanged on a cross. And the facts were spelled out. That's what Peter does. He says, you hung him on a tree. You killed him. But God brought him to life. Peter wasn't rubbing salt in the wound. He wasn't exaggerating. He was just reporting events. But these people ground their teeth at the things they were responsible for and which they had deliberately said, his blood be on us. Now they say, you're trying to make us feel guilty. 
Do you see how guilt is absolutely always self-deceptive? Every pastor and counselor knows that. People will sit in front of you, be talking about life problems, the breakup of a marriage, whatever it is, something in their life that's gone awry, and they'll say, well, yeah, I think I did this wrong, and I kind of did that wrong. But they'll, they'll be able to just not even look at, you know, some great big bulldozer of a problem that's right there, the, the five-ton elephant that's in the room. They'll look around it, they'll look at the elephant's tail and say, yeah, you know, I, I recognize that. Uh, yeah, maybe I did, but elephant? What elephant? Second Timothy 3.13 has Paul speaking about enemies of the cross, and he says this, evil men, evil men and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Guilty people are deceived, self-deceived. They don't understand themselves. They don't understand their own motives, their own difficulties, their own sins, until God the Spirit would awaken them and give them a clear sight of what they have done, they will live believing their own version of everything. They spun a web of a tale. Well, this is what's wrong. It isn't really what's wrong, but it's the tale that they're ready to tell. And fallen man, apart from the redemption that Christ brings, doesn't even comprehend what he's doing wrong. And so here are these people, and it's so obvious to us, they're stewing in their own juice, and they don't see it. An application of that, folks, is when you encounter somebody who's angry about Christianity, who's writing the editorial, who's writing the letter in the paper, or spewing at the water fountain in your office, or whatever, about Christians and their hypocrisies and all of that. You naturally get angry. You naturally get upset. You want to bring an opposite argument, but, but stop and think about this once in a while. Stop and think how guilty and actually afraid on the inside the person authoring those words is. He's pursued by his own demons. He doesn't understand what he's saying. He's self-deceived. I'm not saying that, that excuses everything, but that's something for us to know at least and understand that we're dealing with self-deceived people. Now, thirdly, as we come to an end here with verse 34 to 42, we learn this. The abuse of God's messengers actually confers honor upon them. This famous teacher of the law, Gamaliel, appears here. And by the way, this guy is known outside the Bible. This isn't the only place we ever hear of him. He actually was a very outstanding scholar in his day. Later on, when Paul, who earlier was Saul of Tarsus, tells about his early background, Acts 22 has him saying that he studied at the feet of Gamaliel. He was proud of that. This man was a, you know, one to be in your resume. If you were a student of Gamaliel, that, that really conferred respect upon you. Well, Gamaliel stands up and gives this advice. He's the moderate in the crowd. He's the guy who kept his head. And he says, look, my friends, you're really getting exercised here. Send them out so we can talk. Let me advise you. It would be best if you would just leave these people alone. Look at the histories we've had of, of, you know, these folks arise. They come along all the time, these little revolutionaries, and they have a party and they stir things up, and they're soon gone. And then he says, why don't we just 
treat them with neglect, leave them alone. And you know, if it might even be, and this is the interesting statement in verse 39, he says, if you fight them all the way, you might even be fighting God. You really wish Gamaliel had been given the true wisdom from the Holy Spirit because if he had been given a fullness of wisdom, he wouldn't have just admitted the possibility that they could be fighting God. He, he might have said, you know, the really wise thing to do here would be to investigate this life that they preach, this Christ. Maybe he's true. Maybe we'll actually find out that he is indeed the Son of God. But of course, they didn't go that far, did they? And so we read of the disciples, the apostles, taking a beating, and that was no small thing. Probably the cat of nine tails permanently scarred their backs. They went out and rejoiced to be counted worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus. Does this have any application to our times? I say it's all over the place. Opposition against Christianity, the risen Christ and his message, has worked itself into a fever pitch in our time. If you say, well, I'm not liable to experience what they did. No, you know, the man I'm township police aren't going to come knock on my door and say, come on in, I want an account of your Christian. No, that's not going to happen. But if you don't understand that the whole culture we live in is locked in this, that the whole root of the reason for the 9-11 attacks on America and the continuing furious raging of radical Islam against the West, that it is rooted in an attack on Christianity, you don't understand what's going on. That's the entire reality our world is living in, seething with ridicule against, even if, you know, Yes, Islam is mad at things that aren't directly Christian. I understand. But the root is a spiritual battle. And there's this way in which so many ways in our own culture, our own editorialists, our own scholars have found ways to gag the messengers of Christ and jail the missionaries of Christ, murder the pastors who stand for Christ, censure the radio broadcasts, bomb the churches, If you really got the news that was the news instead of the news that somebody thought you should hear, you would understand that this is happening all the time in many parts of the world. You know, a sidebar observation, as political conservatives, which describes many of you I know in this country, try to face the so-called new normal. You heard about the new normal? The new normal is conservatism isn't in anymore and it's not likely to come back in or be a majority voice anymore. And everyone's going, oh, how can I live? Well, let me tell you about the old normal. The old normal is Christianity has never been the norm, has never been the majority, and never will be the majority until the day when Jesus Christ appears and consummates history at the end of the age. That's the old normal. The old normal is the people of Christ live as a disadvantaged minority, persecuted, labeled, criticized, opposed. And guess what? It's not a surprising thing. It's not a a strange thing. It's actually a badge of honor. In fact, Peter, who was being mistreated right in this passage, later wrote in his first letter, 1 Peter 4.12, do not be surprised 
at the fiery ordeal that is coming on you. It's coming to prove you. If I was preaching on that text, I'll give you the two-point sermon in 60 seconds. Coming to prove you how? Number one, to show that you are identified with Christ. Suffering proves who you belong to. Number two, prove you in terms of shape you, mold you, make you into the image of Christ. Don't be surprised. This is the old normal that happens to Christians. Persecution against Christians of one kind or another is not even deemed to be newsworthy because it's basically approved of or at least ignored in our society. Here and there, you actually hear a newspaper or somebody write an editorial about this, and, and, they'll, and they'll act with, did you know that this or that is going on in the Sudan to Christians or North Korea or someplace? And they'll tell you, again, some of our folks right here, some of our new friends, refugee friends, have faced this in their country. Bitter, violent, terrible opposition because they have to do with Christianity. It's not news here. In fact, here it's common practice that we allow the attacks on Christians. You see, we have this diabolical culture today, a culture in which if the same things were said about the followers of the false prophet in the newspaper, the newspaper offices would be firebombed. It would be. But they're said about Christians, and oh, what's that? That doesn't mean anything. Folks, an early church father named Tertullian once was experiencing strong opposition and persecution of those he led. He wrote a letter that exists to the Roman emperor or the empire. I don't know what official he wrote it to, but some official of the empire. And here's exactly what he said. He said, kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. Because the seed of the church is the blood of Christians. That same thing was echoed in the 1970s when the nation of Uganda was seeing very bitter violent persecution against Christians there. And an African Episcopal leader, Bishop Festo Kavenjura, said in Uganda, a courageous man, he said, we Christians do not generally begin to grow mature until we bleed for Jesus' sake. The new normal and the old normal is opposition to the people of God. It's a privilege, you see, to stand in the line of fire of blows aimed at our Savior. Because when we receive those blows, when that mud thrown at him is splashed on us, we are thereby dignified by standing with him. Our duty to God's word, whether it be something as mild as as office mockery or people perhaps standing aside from you and maybe being suspicious of you or critical of you, or outright violence. Our obligation, our duty, our privilege, our honor is to stand firm where Christ plants us. Be prepared for the waves when they come. Be joyful to know that we stand secure in Christ. 
and be confident that this battle absolutely belongs to the Lord. And the victory will be his. Our Father, we pray. When we think of the courage, the suffering, persecution of your church through the ages, we think today of people who are even being tortured or have been in solitary confinement for many months or years as we are here in comfort and freedom. Oh God, help us to stand and to see that the wave is coming against you and to be willing to plunge in as we know you will preserve us and bring honor to your name. For Jesus' sake, amen.